This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bugner. I am on location again this week in the Bay Area of California, sitting in the offices of East Brother Beer Company with head brewer Paul Lashevsky. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks. Thanks for stopping by, Jamie. I am thrilled to be out again, uh, traveling around the country and being able to do these things in person. And uh, it's a it's an incredible week that I've got ahead of me. Uh, and the people that listen to the podcast will learn more about that later on. Uh, but I'm not going to ruin any ruin any of those surprises. Uh, we're going to talk about lager brewing because uh, that is something the East Brother has set out to do here in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area, um, creating a decidedly old school approach to beer. I shouldn't say old school. I should just say classic and timeless mm-hmm. approach to beer, um, you know, to kind of complement the other city's beer offerings. Uh, and you all have done a fantastic job with it. You've won, you know, medal for uh, Bow Pills and other things. And mm-hmm. uh, and so we're going to talk about pre- pre-pro lager. We're going to talk about uh, Bohemian Pilsner. We're going to talk about Red Lager and uh, some of the other lager brewing that you all do. Before we do that, G&D Chillers, born in the Pacific Northwest from a lot of hard work and a singular goal, they've become the best damn chiller company in the world like you gnd never settles they're relentless and strive to be better every single day because they take pride in the work they do they are craftsmen who know good enough won't cut it visit gnd chillers at cbc booth 3011 that's 3011 or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. And I noticed you guys have a GD Chillers uh, chiller out yeah, there, don't you, Paul? We do. And I had a, I had a chuckle because I was listening to the Cloudburst uh, podcast this morning, and they threw out an endorsement for them. And I, yeah, they they've been awesome, great customer service, and uh, we're we're built to expand with them for sure. Well, I just put you on the spot and I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> this episode is also brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1 800 374 2739. So, Paul, give me the uh, the Paul history and a bit of the East Brother history. Uh, kind of walk us through East Brother, and then uh, also talk about how you got here and uh, what, you know your path through the world of brewing. Cool. Uh, so, East Brother, we've been here in Richmond for almost five years now. Started by Chris Coomber and Rob Leitner. Uh, they were neighbors. Uh, started drinking and you know doing some homebrew together, and just found that they loved it uh, and decided to pursue it further they stumbled upon richmond uh, when they're going around looking for locations and you know they kind of fell in love with you know the city of richmond it's kind of um their their motto is pride and purpose and which we've kind of adopted as our our own but it says a lot about the kind of the work ethos uh of the city of richmond uh, but as they were driving across the Richmond Bridge, uh, they noticed the East Brother Lighthouse. And so not only they found a location, they also found uh, a name. A symbol. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and. Uh, yeah, this is a it's kind of a working class port town. And, you know, and it feels it actually feels a lot like San Pedro in, uh, in kind of L.A., uh, south of L.A. area. Mm-hmm. And that it's, you know, it's a place where a lot of that kind of commerce of ocean, uh, you know, travel and uh, uh, shipping and everything else happens. And so, uh, you know, it just definitely feels of of the uh, earth here. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Rosie the Riveter was, you know, right in this area. In fact, where our brewery is was the the area where they used to have the Rosie the Riveter uh, dormitories uh, back in World War Two. So. Uh, yeah, just a lot of industrial history here. And, uh, you know, again, back to the pride and purpose, you know, they 
drove a, a war effort and you know there there was purpose and it just continues yeah yeah uh, to this day so and the kind of beers reflect that that same kind of ethos the they're not too fancy they yeah. are but they are well made and they're well crafted and uh and that seems to be your approach around it yeah and they work <laughs> yeah yeah so you came out of siebel and then kind of yes. and then pursued a professional career from there yeah. So uh, after close to 20 years in tech, I had enough of cubes, uh, was dabbling in home brewing. I shouldn't say dabbling, but uh, a growing addiction to making my own beer. Um, <laughs> sure. And decided I, I need to make a change and went to Siebel, uh, got my associate's degree in brewing technology and, uh, you know, saw the value in, in education. And, you know, I'm not a spring chicken, so having cert- certification behind what you're doing. Sure. You know, following my passion and into a new career. And uh, you, you've worked at other breweries before uh, coming to East Brother? Yeah, I got my start at Devil's Canyon Brewing Company in San Carlos. Uh, they're a contract brewing company as well as running their own house brand. They've been about 20 years, so uh, they got some brewing experience. Uh, but what I really liked about it was I got to brew other breweries beer and get exposed to many different styles and you know recipe design and and kind of business directions uh and yeah it was it was kind of exciting and you know it was more exciting going to like the opening night of san francisco beer week and walking down the aisle and being going oh, i brewed that i brewed that <laughs> i brewed that one um but it was also There's a nice discipline to that too where you know you you need to brew it this way and you need to learn how to brew it and learn why they brew it that way so you can reach that goal and have you know achieve these kinds of brand mm-hmm. standards across all of those things no that's uh yeah we had to hit you know i'm brewing someone else's recipe and and, and i have to hit their target numbers and you know, live up to their expectations of what they want that beer to be. And, you know, trying to get inside the head of another brewer and what they want and how they want it done. So, so then you decided to sign on here with, uh, with East brother and you walk in and they had a framework, you know, for the beer Mm -hmm. uh, at East brother. And it was a very traditionally minded framework. Talk to me about, um, you know, getting involved in this and kind of joining midstream where there was a beer program in place, Um, And then finding your role in all of that. Sure. Um, You know, there was was a little bit of time to, you know, understand the recipes and what they were trying to accomplish. Uh, Lucky, uh, Chris and I shared the kind of same brew philosophy, uh, an approach to traditional beer and kind of very being very meticulous about how it's produced and, you know, repeatability uh, from batch to batch. And. Then, you know, just start taking a look at, um, I don't want to say, you know, flaws, but how can we make the beer better? And, you know, we're a packaging brewery. So looking at, you know, how well, how long does that beer last in a can? How does it look? How does it taste? Where are the aromas? And just kind of making methodical incremental changes batch after batch and addressing those, um, one of my first tasks was to come up with a seasonal series and we immediately were drawn to the, the lager series, you know, the bow pills and the red lager make up more than 50% of our sales. Uh, and it's like, well, we should do something with loggers. Uh, so now I was tasked with, all right, I need to pick four loggers, uh, you know, out of, a, you know, an entire list. Uh, and, you know, it was fun because it was like, oh, what do I want to drink? <laughs> or sure, it, sure, but it's also what do other people want to drink and 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 whatnot. So we should say this probably it wasn't the initial plan for East Brother. The idea was not necessarily, hey, let's build a lager brewery from day one. Um, you've got a whole bunch of you know twenty barrel fermenters out there yeah. that are not optimized for lager <laughs> fermentation. That suggests that that wasn't the initial vision. And then you've got another part of the cellar back here with much much larger tanks that are definitely geared for that kind mm-hmm. of lager brewing. Um, you know that showcase that kind of evolution of the brewery and the focus as as you went on. Um, you know, talk to me a little bit about how that happened. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting thing for a brewery to say, Hey, 
we're going to go with what's working. And right. it's a weird one when what's working is a Bohemian Pilsner or a yeah. red lager. Yeah, something that takes six weeks to make. Where and- <laughs> we're all of a sudden, right, now, yeah. oh, wait, you know, we, we may not have been set up perfectly for that in the past, and that, but we've got to lean into that. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, as we know, ales are basically two weeks and done, you know, by the time you... Yeah, and you make a fair amount of those too, and you make yeah. some really beautiful traditional style ales. Sure, yeah. um, but uh, you know that twenty barrel tank I can turn three times in six weeks. Uh, you know, when you look at uh, a twenty barrel batch of of lagers that takes six weeks to make, you know, you know, realistically, you're three barrels a week in sales, and as we know, that's that doesn't go very far. Um, and packaging lager in cans and then selling it at a price point that people will pay for even for craft lager means you it's got to be a volume play yeah and so uh before i got here they already had a couple of 60 barrel uh fermenters in place and you know since i've been here we've doubled in sales year over year with the exception of last year we did show a little bit of growth even during through covid um but it was very apparent that you know, our loggers were, were becoming, you know, more in focus and, and more in demand. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to forecast that out, you know, what am I going to brew? You know, I could tie up all five of those 20 barrels and still be woefully behind. Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, you know, we've expanded quite a bit, uh, since I've been here and we're still, uh, I think today was the first day I didn't see a bunch of red dates, uh, in my calendar, um, you know, we're still small enough that our brew schedule can be a little bit more fluid. And, uh, yeah, it was a little refreshing. It was the first yeah. Monday I haven't seen like red. You should have brewed this three weeks ago. Oh. Like, I can't do that. <laughs> um, what's, but, uh, what's the overall volume for the brewery now? Uh, or where are you on track for this year? We are, we did about 2,500 barrels, a little over 2,500 yeah. barrels last year. Uh, we are going to surpass that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and we're looking probably over 5,000 barrels, uh, by the end of the year. Wow. Okay. So yeah, so, we're, kegs are back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, what, uh, one thing you mentioned was that sales of the loggers are more than 50% of brewery sales now. Yeah. We're uh, approaching 60%, uh, on our loggers, uh, so that's a significant uh, line of business for you all uh, yes. that was not necessarily intended originally, but uh, but something. Um, so talk to me then about the kind of creative process, or I should say, let's talk about that kind of creative and design process and how you all have come up with an identity for these loggers. But before we do that, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, with nearly 20 years of innovation and experience, Brewmation specializes in electric, steam, and direct fire brew houses, Complete seller solutions and automated controls for the craft brewing industry. From half-barrel to 30-barrel systems, Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and your brewing style. Whether you're starting a new brewery, upgrading your cellar, or just need some parts to keep you up and running, Brewmation has you covered. Visit them at brewmation.com to get started. So yeah, Paul, let's talk about uh, the kind of uh, design basics uh, behind your loggers. Uh, You know... You had a couple in place when you joined the brewery, and so mm-hmm. I know you, you can't really talk about the formation of those, but you've definitely put fine points on it. Let's uh, kind of start with Bow Pills, and this is a, a you know a beer that you've won a GABF medal for. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about the kind of design inspiration behind it and where it came from and how you have shepherded this beer uh, you know, as you've brewed it more often. Sure. Um, it was a, a recipe that I guess I've kind of adopted as my own now. Um, and it's, I like that. I like yeah. that. It's mine now. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll get razzed for this uh, <laughs> on our Wednesday manager's call. Um, but well, it is your responsibility <laughs> to make it good. Yes. And I, I guess, you know, with, with Siebel 
has, has led to me is just be much more scientific about how you brew beer. Um, you know, it's, you know, making a one-off recipe sometimes is almost easy because you have nothing to base it upon and you drink it and then you write down your, your notes and this is how I would do it better the next time. So you brew, brew it different. Uh, for me, it's, I need pretty much, you know, I need to make the same beer every single time. And as I tweak the, tweak the recipe either to balance out the hops or perfect the water profile or, you know, we haven't been happy with kind of the malt presence or the mouthfeel. There's just so many levers that we can manipulate uh, to kind of make the, the beer, you know, that we want it to be. Uh, but I also have this, you know, I need to make sure that beer tastes as good and fresh in that can, you know, in the groceries aisle, you know, a week after it was packaged or six months out of packaging. So, you know, we're looking at you know, DO levels and, you know, making sure the beer is absolutely clear, free of anything. Um, and just tweaking the, the, the brewing process itself, you know, where is there, was there an original idea behind it? You know, was there the, Hey, it should have this malt. Let's use this yeast. I mean, I imagine with the lager program, you all have so, tried to standardize <laughs> your, your approach to yeast across, you know, yeah. in a way that works for all of these loggers. Um, yeah, you know, I'm curious about the kind of creative point of view that you brought to it. What was that original inspiration and how'd you guys go around, you know, just uh, helping develop that and shape it into what it was going to be? Sure. Um, you know, Rob and Chris did a lot of batches on their back porch, uh, to get the, the recipe initially, uh, and ironically, the they're ar- brewing Bohemian Pilsner <laughs> on their back porch as yes. home brewers. Uh, Respect. Chris, yeah, Chris is a uh, he, he's one of these guys you you know you give him a problem or a question or what have you, and he'll just keep doing iterations and iterations until it's correct. Ironically, when they first opened the brewery, the original recipe of what they got it down to. Well, from, you know, at homebrew scale, you may only need a few ounces of hops and so many pounds at a commercial scale, those ounces turn into pounds and, and whatnot. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get those hops. So the recipe was actually rewritten from day one, uh, to, to, to meet those demands. Um, and it's, you know, I guess it's just my relationship with Chris and, regularly tasting the beers and listening to them and picking up, you know, he was the original envisionary of it and picking up what he likes about it. Uh, and then turning, you know, the little knobs that we can, you know, and amping up, you know, we get a, just a really, you know, in the, in the bow pills, there's still just a little touch of kind of this lemon citrusy, uh, character from the hops that really makes you want to go back to drink more, uh, but you still need to preserve that kind of delicate cracker malt uh, snackiness you get out of it, um, and, and and just trying to preserve that, even if we have to change malt or if we change the yeast, uh, you know, are, are we still? Am I still living up to his true intent? Uh, so it sounds to me as if there's this articulated idea in language about what the beer is mm-hmm. and that the recipe connects to that, yes. but that you are still trying to optimize to this kind of linguistic idea of what the beer should be with those kinds of descriptors. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, you no, know, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, you know, di- different breweries do it different ways and I love yeah diving into like how what is the definition of that beer is it this written description of it is it these consistent you know descriptors that you use and then do you optimize to that or is it the recipe yeah and then however that recipe ends up being that's what the beer is you know i think the bow pills you know comes falls back onto my contract brewing days you know i kind of in some ways view chris as my contract brewer and i'm trying to figure out exactly you know, luckily I've had over three years to figure that out. And, you know, now we kind of make it really consistent and, you know, to, to what he expects. And, sure. And, uh, you know, it takes, I don't want to say skill, but, you know, just reading between the lines sometimes. Yeah. And 
what are the what are some of those core tenets? You know, um, what, what what are the key definition points that you'd set out for it, and what are some of the ingredient decisions that you've made in order to achieve some of those key points? What are what are those critical kind of crux pieces there? It absolutely needs to be clean and flawless every every single time uh, with so logger. it's a logger yeah <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> sorry you know it's uh as, as i want to hold up my 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 pre-pro or our pre-pro sorry uh but it's it's just as clear uh, there's you know it is so pale and there's just nothing behind if there's any flaw uh in the beer it's it's so apparent uh you know so it's you know making sure myself and my team is you know following every single step to exacting details time and time again <clears throat> but ultimately yeah. and real, want, really want, caring yeah. about what they're doing uh to achieve that and i think that that is an excellent piece on the technical execution of it i would i just want to stay focused on the kind of creative right you know <laughs> the creative piece of it first before we get into that because yeah. right you're right. You know, as others, as Ashley uh, from uh, our Ashley Carter Bierstadt has said, like it's not doing one thing; it's doing 99 things repeatedly over and over again and doing them perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this, you know, when you think about ingredients, I mean, there's a lot of things that you can lean on. There's a lot of hops that you can lean on. You all have made some slightly different hops choices than I would say might be considered mainstream for this overall style. Um, and so I'm curious about like, you know, how do you, what is the definition for that? And, and what are some of those kinds of choices you've made in building a recipe to kind right. of achieve some of those creative elements of this? Luckily, some of those big decisions were made before my time. <laughs> it's all right. It's fair yeah. enough. Um, you got to execute know, them though. Yeah. It, the, the original recipe was written for one particular Pilsner malt and Saz hops. And both of those ingredients weren't, weren't available at the time. Um, you know, we did make a change in yeast a couple years ago, uh, which is really impactful, you know, sure, people sure. really forget how much, you know, flavor development is right. driven from yeast. And what, what was the change from what to what? Uh, we changed vendors. Um, uh, we originally chose a, I really like the yeast, um, but unfortunately, it wasn't on one of their regular production schedules. So, anytime you needed yeast, you had to book it at least six weeks out. And uh, you know, three years ago, when we're not churning over batch over batch, and had to really stretch out our strains, uh, you know, our generations or you right. know, time bef- between use, um, it was kind of getting too difficult to sure. like. Hey, I need. I need yeast in, you know, two weeks, not six. Um, so what, we, what was the strain that you started with? Uh, it was a bohemian lager yeast from Y yeast. Uh, sure. And it actually ended up falling really nicely into our, our, our lager series for the bulk of them. Uh, so it was a pretty big change. Uh, when we moved to German lager yeast from White Labs, uh, you know, I, I like the very clean uh ferment it's for me it's almost kind of like the 001 of lager yeast sure sure uh i find it to be very versatile and uh it's not imparting a huge flavor of itself onto the beer uh and it's very predictable we get good attenuation and you know we're happy with future generations of it Works with this hundred barrel cylinder conical that yes, you're uh, you're making uh, Bohemian pills in, and yes. works with tank geometry and all of those things. Yes, and um, um, and I've always been a big fan of White Labs uh, transparency and uh, availability. You know, yeah, I can see if it's in stock and when I will get it and choose and blah blah blah. Sure, sure, uh, all those fun brewer things that no one talks about. I mean, you know, those are the right day-to-day concerns where yeah. being, you know, having that kind of transparency and visibility yeah. also, also it's, helps you get your job done. Yeah. Especially when you're growing, you know, when you're, you know, going from six, 700 barrels a year to 1500, you know, you can, yeah, we, we generate a lot of yeast in the process, but sometimes it's 
not fast enough for, for your, for your growth. And, uh, so it was kind of one of the deciding factors, but you know, when we make a change as impactful of that, it's, I never want the, the drinker coming up at the bar or picking up the four pack at their corner store and going, Oh wow, this batch is really different. So you can also have to devise a, sure. You know, how do I implement this change? Uh, without anyone noticing it, you know, fortunately, I, I don't think it was as, you know, flavor wise in the beer, it wasn't as noticeable to probably 90% of the craft beer drinkers out there. Uh, but maybe for us, cause we're hypersensitive to what that beer should taste like. Um, you know, so we start blending, blending things in, you know, beer stat is, you know, we make 99 changes, you know, over, over the course of 99 batches rather than one big change. Um, right. Right. You know, so change, test, evaluate, you know, adjust. Yeah. Yeah. So we do smaller batches, blend them into bigger batches and, you know, it's almost like production brewery stuff. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, go figure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, it's, are we comfortable with the change and are, are we happy with the direction? And, you know, if one batch tastes a little bit different and we, pull back on that decision you know it's still fine drinkable good beer right um and we go back to the old decision you know then you know we figure it out and it's uh we're always problem solving and sure when you made that yeast change what um what was the initial and most immediate kind of impact that you you noticed from doing that and what uh what problems or you know what kind of impacts did you then have to adjust for sure we ferment very cold. We're always on the lower end of the kind of recommended uh, temperatures that the, the yeast manufacturers, uh, propagators, give to us. Uh, the Y yeast. Why? I uh, keep it clean. Just to uh, slow things down. Slow a little things bit more. down. Let the yeast do its what it's best. Make at. it even less efficient. Yes, yeah. so less efficient, slower. Uh, but it's also, yeah, I, I kind of equate it is. Ale yeasts are, you know, you know, that weekend warrior that goes out there and plays softball for eight hours and is all sweaty and stinky afterwards and, you know, has his own flavor versus, you know, the guy that goes out into his hammock for two days in the backyard and swings drinking a beer. There's probably not a lot of flavor change between the two, but, you know, it's the same thing with yeast is, you know, the warmer you go, it throws off more of these esters and, and flavors uh, and really changes the character. You know, even if you look at like a Hefeweizen yeast is you can ferment them kind of low and slow and suppress them or let it go wild and get this banana clove, you know, phenol bomb. Sure. Uh, all from the same yeast. Uh, the, the big thing that we noticed is, you know, our fermenta- fermentation temperature actually raised up a little bit because, uh, you know, I'm looking at specs of, of the yeast, um, and what we found was the beer was fermenting a little bit faster. It was clearing up. Oh, it's giving diac- itself a little bit more warmth yeah, then. Yeah, and it was, okay. it was clearing up the diacetyl rest uh, uh, a little bit quicker. So, you know, as the, you know, basically production manager, it's like, okay, well, now I can turn that tank, you know, 8.3 times a year versus 8.5 or other way around doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, all those weeks and stuff add up. And if I can squeeze another batch every now and again, that's it. That helps us. Um, but yeah, and it's just kind of paying attention and, you know, going on previous experience and drawing from what have I used prior and what did I like about it? And, you know, as a brewer, but as a, heavy craft beer drinker sure i try a lot of different things and a lot of times i get to try them with the brewer and oh what yeast are you using what what hop is this what what barley and and get a little bit more than what you'll get off of the label or the beer menu and you just kind of store that you know in the back of your mind and we have to make those changes you know you can remember those beers or revisit them and and see the subtle differences 
did the yeast change impact the way that uh, malt or hops expressed themselves in the beer? And did, did you have to then adjust any of those other parameters in the recipe in order to kind of, I wouldn't say compensate, but uh, rebalance to the, the new normal? Yes, uh, but we were also in the process of, of addressing some other changes oh, okay. at the same time. Sure, sure. And uh, we were already playing with, uh, you know, what the malt was doing and, and, and the hops. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, always thinking about, you know, how can we squeak out another half barrel here or there? If we use a little bit less hop, can we right. maintain that profile um, but gain another keg or, you know, sure. Um, but you know, less hops is also, it costs us a little bit less, uh, to make. Um, yeah. So, so there's some efficiency piece of there and, and I shouldn't say this, like, I mean, we're in this world where adding more hops sounds like a good thing, but mm -hmm. at some point, you know, there's declining, uh, rates of return and, you can load up 10 pounds per barrel, but you know, the impact may not be any more than four pounds per barrel. And all you've done is soaked up more liquid and, uh, in the hops yeah. that you're going to throw away. Um, and, you know, and you really have, and, and at some point also, you know, you hit a saturation point where more of those thing, uh, elements of the beer, they can actually pull things out of solution of the beer, which works entirely against their whole goal in this. Now, you're talking about Pilsner, and so that's probably we're not at a kind of saturation thresholds yeah. <laughs> where that's going to be a the issue here. Yeah. But um, but talk to me a little bit about that, nonetheless, about how to you know how you focused on pinpointing the right amount of hops to you know both achieve kind of production goals of making sure that you weren't losing more beer into hop waste at that point, mm -hmm. um, you know, but also making sure that it's still captured the kind of character that you were looking for also you mentioned earlier that uh you know started with uh saz hops and then had to make some changes based on what was available to you talk to me a little bit about that process too uh luckily that was done before my time oh okay <laughs> uh you know but they they settled on steer and aurora um you know and they went from a a german pilsner mall to a belgian franco-belgian uh, malt and we always talk about how you know we're technical we're true to style and then it's when people kind of hear what's in it you know a few people will be like wait a minute but those aren't the traditional right that was my thought right <laughs> yeah. there like using a franco-belgian pilsner malt but i think it's, that's great because that brings us to that question of is a beer what a beer tastes like or is a beer a product of the source of the ingredients. And we see so many brewers, especially in the United States these days, brewing beers and calling it a German Pilsner because it uses German Pilsner malt and it uses German hops. So clearly it's a German Pilsner, but it doesn't taste like a German Pilsner. Is it a German Pilsner? Like, I mean, there's, there's the big question there. If you make a Bohemian style pills, it tastes like a Bohemian style pills, even though it uses, Franco-Belgian, you know, Pilsner malt and uses Styrian, Styrian hops, yeah, right? Styrian Aurora. Styrian yeah, Aurora and, hops. And yeah. You know, should we define <laughs> things by what they are familiar with to the people that are drinking those things? Or should we define things by the source of the ingredients for those? It's a bigger, broader philosophical question. I don't think we need to answer that one today, but I'm just, I think it's interesting that you've taken that approach to ingredients to achieve the flavors that you're trying to achieve. You know, we we've been going through a lot of Pilsner malt trials right now. Not nothing at at scale, and it you know we we found that continental malts uh, have a, a very similar flavor profile. There are certainly nuances from region to region, and you know prime example of that are you know Munich versus Vienna malts. Essentially, the same malt found at about the same time, two different guys, just a slightly different direction, matching, you know, their city's kind of direction and beer choice. Uh, and they evolved from that. Um, but what we find is, you know, we kind of like that old world continental malt flavor. Uh, there's a little bit more in depth uh, that we just haven't been able to find in a U.S., you know, a North American Pilsner malt. Is it, is it the soil or is it everything grown around, the climate? You know, those those changes that we don't have here because we don't mirror 
you know, where this malt is grown there. Um, but we're just not finding that flavor depth or complexity in the North American malt. So, um, you know, we're, we're picking out what we kind of what we like and what we think's good and how, how that balance works. Um, you know, steer in Aurora, you know, it's still a classic noble hop, maybe, you know, not directly out of, of Germany and everything, but in the same vein, it's sure, you know, it, it's capturing, you know, I think the right Some flavor broader idea of Bohemia, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and you know, I, I guess you could argue that that little lemon snap that we get in there is not correct, but it balances the beer out and it makes you want to drink more and, you know, it's light and refreshing, uh, and, and we like it. So if we like it, then we're going to make it the best example that we can. And every batch is going to be just like that other batch. And, you know, as I'm talking about all the change, subtle sure, changes sure. we make, but you know. no, those are, those are the nice pieces. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that as much as, you know, and, and we can run into this, maybe we should maybe I'll say it a different way. You know, the farmhouse ale makers have grown comfortable with terroir and building individual ideas of expression. Mm-hmm. Um, lager brewing is not about building a monocultural idea of one beer and everyone trying to strive towards this singular ideal of what that is. One of the beautiful things about lager brewing is that there is that kind of diversity in it. The brewers achieve different things. They have different flavor goals. They don't need to all make the same exact beer. It's not a singular goal and idea. Uh, And there is room for this kind of expression within, even though it is a regimented thing. And even though there are expectations around those parameters, I think mm-hmm. that it's a beautiful thing that you find that kind of expression. And so you might find brewers making their, you know, Pilsner with Aram, French Aramis hops, and that gives it a certain different thing. I yeah. love this. You've got your Styrian Aurora hops, and it adds this particular element that's yours. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a beauty to those that use Sites Farm hops, and that's all they use, and that's all they ever use, and it's going to yeah. be exactly like this. I love those beers too, yeah. but I think that. You know, there's this nice piece of finding a character that is also uh, relevant, interesting, um, you know, and, and mm-hmm. ex- exemplifies a, a different kind of creative approach to that. Yeah. And, you know, we also have to, rem- you know, remember that, you know, every town had a brewery, you know. Right. You know, we didn't have trucking systems and, and train and all that. So beers were very local you know, very hyper local and you would just see variants because they drew from the ingredients from around them. Uh, and so even a, a Hellas back, you know, you're go 25 miles away into a different town, that Hellas will taste just slightly different, even though the ingredients might be almost identical, uh, you know, came from Bob's farm versus, you know, Josephine's farm, uh, you know, same malt, but you know, just just slightly different flavor and sure, it's sure, all the little nuances. <laughs> I love it because I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but uh, Jeff Allworth uh, wrote about uh, Kolsch for us mm-hmm. in the last issue, and it was just the amazing thing because I mean, if you think about it, like you've got Cologne, you've got Dusseldorf, and you know, you can't find a Kolsch outside of Köln. Like, you're just not going, to, like, you go 25 miles away. They don't mm-hmm. even make that style of beer. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, right, this kind of individual specialization. But I also find, you know, that this kind of character that brewers build is, is mm-hmm. useful. And that as American brewers, as we look at these kinds of models, uh, it's also important to understand how you know, to achieve the what parameters you can adjust what right. which ones you can't and that's why i love having these kinds of conversations um so we've been talking a lot about bohemian pills is there any other element that you find um you know that, that really helps make your bohemian pills your own is there a technical process to this? I mean, uh, you know, are, are there, you know, as, as you've been going through this, using the yeast that you use, using this Pilsner malt that you use, using these hops that you use, that um, in any way, you know, are, are there special tweaks that you've had to find in your production process to kind of pull the good stuff out of them? No, it's, uh, you know, the, I guess those special tweaks would be 
all those things as a brewer that you want to do. And it's just a matter of actually doing them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know as sometimes as a small craft brewer, you can be overwhelmed by everything, you know, your, your brew schedule and being understaffed and, and blah, blah, blah. And you just might not find that, you, you know, you had time to do that true dump or right. dump that extra yeast uh, or, you know, check a beer that's lagering, you know, for, for three weeks and see how it's doing and, and tasting it along the way. Um, we, we don't want to take shortcuts and, right. you know, and as a leader for, for my team, it's kind of instilling those values and, you know, Hey, I'm too busy. Can you help me out with this? And working as team just to make sure we get all those small little steps that can be forgotten or overlooked uh, that, you know, that I feel are important, if not essential to, to making a good lager and, and keeping it clean. And, sure. And sure. Well, let's pivot and talk about some of the, uh, kind of uh, other loggers, because mm-hmm. you mentioned that this, uh, you know, expanding the logger program was one of the, the first things that you undertook mm-hmm. before we do that. There's nothing easy about brewing beer. It's an intricate time consuming art. The last thing you need to face is a recall or contamination that can hurt your pride and your pocketbook. Clarion lubricants meet strict purity and performance standards to help make your system 100% food safe. That's protection for your equipment and for your beer. So make the switch to Clarion and ensure your system is running smooth and safe. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So let's talk about how you built out a, an even broader logger program mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, some of the kind of you know creative impact that, that you brought to the program. Sure. It was basically, uh, we wanted four seasonal beers, you know, one for each, one for each season. Um, we decided to go to the logger route and, you know, it's, when you look at BJCP, you know, there's what, roughly 150 styles, two thirds of them or so are ales and, much smaller to, to choose from, but you know, if you think fall, there really, really is only one logger that people talk about or give a shit about. It's Oktoberfest, sure, you know. Sure. So fest beer that was easy, low hanging fruit. Um, so right, it's easy to <laughs> say it, but uh, how how'd you make some aesthetic choices about how to brew it? Because, and, and I'm just speaking because the subject is on our mind and our new IPA issue out that is out now got a whole section on fest beer and yeah. do uh, i do a marzen or do i do a fest do beer? you do a fest beer or do you a marzen right yeah. well, how did you approach that one uh I, I hit the history books uh you know i and and plug you should go read joe stang's article about this in the latest issue because the history is really fun and kind of weird about all of this too yeah it's uh yeah you it's I, I just did a presentation for one of the, the local home brewers clubs and this was the was the, the topic was Marzen versus Fest beer. And yeah. I was like, crap, you know what? Every year I have a hard time trying to get the history st- straight about Oktoberfest, because uh, it is just kind of wacky, you know. It was started as a wedding ceremony, uh, then it turned into an agricultural festival that kind of kept this, you know, everything going and um, you know, it was all a brown, you know, dark, dark lager. Uh, and then Vienna Munich malts came along and then we kind of see Marzen, uh, beers being introduced. But at the same time, uh, Germany was saying you can't brew between April and August or whatever it was. So brewers work like madmen in March, hence Marzen beer to, get all this beer in caves and lager it over the summer. And then you had a lot of beer in the fall. Um, fast forward the, you know, it's an ever changing style. So even the Marzins were starting to get a little bit lighter and then, you know, suddenly fast beer, you know, cause people wanted, you know, a liter of poundable, you know, drinkable beer that wasn't going to assault their taste buds so they could continue to eat and drink more, um, be boozy so they could be drunk and have fun and sing in lots and parades and all that. So trying to figure out what the heck it, you know, is it a 
Should I go super dark? Sure, Should sure. I go? And uh, <laughs> we we have a, the habit in America, in particular, of ascribing a timelessness mm-hmm. to all of this. But I mean, what we're talking mm-hmm. about is basically modern history. Yes. If you look at the last hundred years of Oktoberfest, like you know, the number of different beers served at Oktoberfest sixty years ago was pretty diverse, like weirdly diverse mm-hmm. compared to what how we look at it now. Um, you know, and then the idea of Oktoberfest as Merzen has become this very Americanized thing. Like that's yes. the beer that they sell to Americans is Oktoberfest beer. And yes, that has some root in history 30, 40 years ago, but even 30, 40 years ago was starting to shift to more, you know, pale yes. styles of, of, uh, f- of fast beer in order to, again, have people drink more of it and sell more of it, which yeah. Smart business. And then, yeah, like you said, they, yeah. the export versions were darker and more margin like, uh, which adds more confusion. So, you know, when I say, oh, we're going to do a very traditional fest beer, and you're like, what the heck does that Tradition. mean? Like, you know, <laughs> right. Are you reaching to 30 years ago, 40 years ago, yeah. or 60 years ago? Because those are all different, yeah. right? Um, um, you know, but but that's the thing. Like, you know, it's not that these are some somehow like written in stone in some history book right. here. They're constantly evolving, even at Oktoberfest, even in Germany itself. So, um, you know, right, trying to come up with what a beer, uh, of Oktoberfest beer is, yeah. uh, just opens up a whole Pandora's box there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so once you, once I decide, okay, we're doing Fest beer, uh, then it's just like looking at recipes and looking how, you know, how are other breweries and go out and taste beers and what do you like about them and, you know, and then the whole time is like, oh, what? What's my spin? You know, what? What am I going to add? Kind of make this unique and East Brother, and you know, something that I I want to drink. You know, every single year, and um, you know, one very traditional route. Uh, you know, we were still very small at the time. We had big hop contracts, probably more than we need to use. So, I'm going to choose from you know the ingredients most readily available to me. Uh, and then I'm going to pull them together in kind of a unique way uh, to make our fest beer. Ours is, I would argue, maybe probably a little too on the orange side of golden uh, to be a hundred percent accurate, but you know what? San Francisco giants or orange, orange is my favorite color. You know, maybe we'll tweak it that way. Uh, you know, when you first brew it and, and taste it, uh, it's like, okay, I like this. And what's the recipe look like for that? Uh, we've had a couple of iterations, uh, but it's basically Pilsner malt, uh, some Munich, Vienna. Uh, I want to say we use a little bit of, of Cara Munich just to give it some, some color. Um, and as I mentioned before we started this, uh, I should preload. Uh, I forget what hops are in it because we, we brew it once a year. Uh, and I want to say it's steering Aurora and something else. I know it's. Steer, I told you I wasn't going to ask you questions about these one-off beers that you yeah. brew once a year, and then I totally lied because here <laughs> we are, and now now I'm asking you about that, <laughs> which is a totally shame because we just brewed ours just a few weeks, couple weeks ago, which is why we we're talking about it in the magazine and now talking about it on the podcast now because this is the time. That's right. Oh, I lied. Sorry, it's all middle fro. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, probably because we no, never mind. I don't know why I went with middle fruit, but it seemed like the right hop at the right time, and yeah. and, and and ran with it. Um, since the original recipe uh, was written, uh, Admiral Maltings uh, in Alameda opened up, and the craft maltster over here, in, uh, for just a little bit further south from you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Fifteen to thirty minutes, forty-five minutes, depending on traffic. <laughs> First of all, if you own a brewery, never tell your head brewer that cost isn't a problem <laughs> on, on anything. Uh, right, right. You know, but I saw this opportunity. It's, uh, you know, a lot of brewers don't actually get to see how malt is made. And we have that resource right down the street. I, I like the malt. I like that it's all California grown. Um, it is absolutely the freshest malt that we can get. A hold of and and something with with fest beer uh it was an easy sell because it really is still kind of a uh a festival around the harvest and and what's been grown in the area and highlighting the the bounty uh coming from out of the 
out of that. And uh, I just, I, I like the malt and they have So which Admiral malt are you using this? Because is it all, it's not all the malt, is it? You're still using your standard Pilsner-based malt? No, we use uh, the Admiral Pilsner malt. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Midway, which is their Munich, and Pacific Victor, which is their... Uh, Vienna malt. Uh, we do use a little bit of uh, a Weirman, uh Cara Munich uh, in there, but it really for nothing more than just doing. I was just going to make a snarky joke about you know using small amounts of craft malt just to make the marketing claim towards it, but no, you're uh, yeah, uh, you're going I, all in. I, I am, you know, friends with with the founder, and we hang out quite often, and I always. Ask them, you know, what percentage of your malt uh, do we need to have in the beer? Because they will only serve beer made with their malt over their their tap room right there at the malt. Uh, maltery? Malt, malt house. Malt house. Yeah. Thank you. And, um, you know, but I, I that's, that's kind of cheating. You know, <laughs> it's, you know. Where we're, That's we're, like selling 24% of your brewery to a multinational concern yeah, so exactly. that you're underneath the 25% cap, right? Yeah, okay, exactly. I get you. Um, and, you know, but I, I really, I, I, I like the malt. And uh, so it was an easy transition um, from the original recipe uh, into that. And, you know, it just, you know, we're, we're sitting here drinking the, the pre-prohibition lager. And I think that's a, a great example of, you know, something off the shelf that you can buy versus something fresh and local uh, and all the flavor nuances that it brings. And uh, I, I think it just made the beer great. You know, I think it was a pretty solid beer, you know, the first batch and, you know, good first pass at a recipe and took away some, you know, thoughts of how I could, how we could brew it better, you know, the, the next year, you know, luckily the iterations are once a year. So people don't re- really remember what it was exactly. <laughs> uh, so we have a little bit more leeway. Uh, but yeah, we just, you know, we've been able to kind of find, you know, we're really happy with it. And so talk to me about that. Cause you know, you come out of using a pretty standard Pilsner based malt in a lot of your lagers, and then you start using a craft malted Pilsner that of, you know, American grown barley grown mm-hmm. in the state of California, malted by a small craft maltster here. And are there floor malter? Yeah, floor yeah, malt. So it's all floor malt. Yeah, that has to, from a production standpoint, for you, you know, throw some uh, some challenges into the uh, the overall mix. Uh, yes and no, um, but you know the. What, what are the points of difference between using craft malt and using, you know, the kind of uh, continental malt that you were um, much more familiar with brewing your sure. own lagers? Um, freshness. It's, uh, you know, right now lead time on continental malts is about six months. If I remember my last conversation with my supplier, uh, at least six months. It, it takes... You know, to get from from Europe here to California, it's a minimum of six months. So that malt has been malted, kilned, bagged, packaged, put on a cargo ship, you know, container cargo ship, cross, you know, lots of lots of time um, with the craft maltster. It's coming off of the field. Uh, it's malted. And, you know, sometimes you can still kind of feel the warmth uh, from the malting process or from the, the kilning process, uh, in the bags, you know, I, I joke with them. I'm like, you, you should do little bundles of this so we can make a car air freshener. Uh, cause the, you know, we'll get a pallet of malt, 2000 pounds when it comes into the building, even in our large space, you can smell them all. You're like, you know, Rob and Chris have come in and you're like, are you, are you brewing today? And I was like, no, we just got malt from Admiral. Uh, and it's, you know, that freshness that you're smelling and then we're using it right away and we're trying to capture it all in the beer and it just translates. It comes through, you know, the, the comparison I like to use is, you know, with the, the pre-pro, we were using kind of a generic six row uh, barley that, you know, maybe took a year uh, to get to us. Uh, and we started using Admiral's uh, Atlas, which is a locally grown six row 
when I first tasted the They're beer. They're locally growing six row out here now. Yeah, for generations. Uh, uh, ben, ben Work, it's been in his family. You hear uh, that, Matt Riggs? They're growing <laughs> six row out here too. Yeah. They're keeping it alive. Uh, <laughs> it, it's only been used for feed since Prohibition. Yeah. Uh, so there's a good chance that, you know, that first batch that we got was the first time that that six row had seen to be made beer yeah, in almost a yeah. hundred years, which is awesome. Um, but I was like, when I first tasted this beer and I was like getting honeysuckle and clover and all these just really delicate nuanced flavors. And it dawned on me and I was like, I'm tasting everything that helped germinate that barley in his field. Cause it's, it's, of reflective, you know, the bees are pulling pollen from X, Y, and Z close to his fields. And I was kind of tasting that for, for the first time and it made the beer. Um, and then you kind of translate that across, you know, all their malts, you know, they're all coming within the state of California and good farming practices. And yeah, it, it just comes through, you know, it's, it's great to be able yeah. to like, use the best ingredients that you can all the time. You know, sure. It's like if I was a, a chef, yeah, I could go down to the dock and buy that fish directly from the fisherman, or I can buy it, you know, been sitting on ice or frozen, uh, coming from wherever. Sure. You're sure. going to taste the difference between those two pieces of fish. Now on the flip side of that, mm -hmm. sometimes it's not about that intensity of flavor or, or that biggest brightest kind of bouquet from it mm -hmm. and sometimes you don't want it to be that loud mm -hmm. sometimes you want some of those subtle characters you know um especially in the kind of lager beers that you're brewing um you know in that kind of scenario have you found that you need to dial some things down a little bit when uh, you're using this kind of craft malt in, in that kind of uh, space um I, or you just lean straight into it and oh, say, we're I, going for it. We're going for it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, sure. It, it's, it's there, you know, why do we drink lagers? Uh, or, you know, what makes a good lager from a, a bad one? And, you know, you look at, at malt bills and most lagers are really less than a handful of malts, you know, right, right. you see something more than three, you know, four is probably rare uh, until you get into the, you know, you know, the Baltic porters sure. and, and whatnot. You're talking about three or four percentage, percentage different, points. Different malts. Oh, of total uh, note, different yeah. malts, right. And, you know, a lot of time, you know, our Vopils uses two malts. Yeah. Uh, and one really is, I don't know, it's not a, I wouldn't call it a process aid, but, you know, it's kind of, we're enhancing one of the aspects of the beer carapils um, that we like um, or makes it a little bit more desirable. Um Pre-prohibition, you know, it's one six-row malt and flaked maize, you know, and how do you coax? I want as much flavor impact as I can uh, from that malt, and I still want to balance it off of the, like, an appropriate hop, you know, bitterness and flavor and aroma. Um, and you never really want any one of those cast of characters to outshine the other, you know. The malt tastes good because you have enough supporting hop there to, you know, balance the sweetness and make your your senses more attuned to some of those flavors. Uh, or, you know, everything has sure. a, everything has a purpose and just, you know, it takes so, a lot of restraint. Yeah. So <laughs> as I'm thinking about this, you know, you mentioned using middle fruit in this and you mm -hmm. like you just use middle fruit to use middle fruit. But you know, the first time that this, uh, you know, six row, uh, or the, your, your floor malted Admiral stuff comes in for your fest beer and you start thinking about the way that those things are going to go, you know, you've designed this recipe in your mind based on the assumptions that you have around how these things taste and how those mm -hmm. aromas reflect themselves. And then you get those actual ingredients in and they're maybe a little bit different, maybe a little brighter, bolder. Um, you know, more present than you expected them to be. Uh, you know, how has that, how does that impact? You know, do you make creative changes on the fly? Do you rethink some of these things? 
Um, you know, do you then brew and then taste and smell and then make the adjustments after that point and then try to tweak and fine tune, yeah. you know, what does that creative piece of the process look like? Uh, we, we just brewed it and then <laughs> it's, uh, um, yeah, yeah. you know, by the, you know, at this point we only had two batches. We had last year's batch, which I probably still have, you know, well, that's four years ago. Um, probably still having the cooler and, you know, you brew the new batch and, you know, all right, let's go do a little vertical. And, you know, yeah, that can from a year ago is probably a little oxidized and more authentic German now. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as right. you know, we can look. The way that all those beers taste after they put them on a ship and, yeah. and ship them over here. Um, but, you know, there's usually enough of the flavor there to remind you what you really liked about it or what you wanted to fix. Uh, and then you do this, you know, the new version and okay, how did this go? Uh, and then what am I going to do for next year? And more importantly is write all that stuff down. Cause you right, know, right. In, you know, if you don't keep the notes, yeah. In 42 weeks when you're making those purchases decisions on, on stuff, you're probably not going to remember, you know, what, what you wanted to do. I, I, I see no wrong in going after the, the, the freshest ingredients as possible. Um, you know, there, there's a good chance as those nuanced flavors that you were seeking in kind of like the regular generic, more readily stuff. Uh, it's just more pop and, and, and delicious, you know, there, uh, and you appreciate it more. Um, and it, and it, I also find it interesting as that beer ages, those things you're most excited with and it kind of is stepping down week after week after week and it gets to a point you're like oh wow this reminds me exactly what it was last year and you're like oh i kind of gained like six eight weeks of, of freshness and you know being something really excited about something to versus like oh yeah this is a good beer it's a good representative of what it should be uh so yeah Drink fresh beer, please. <laughs> Over time, it'll turn back into that yeah, thing yeah, that's, uh, that's just as good as you remember it. But yeah. if you want it really exciting, yeah, yeah drink uh, it you fresh. know, it's um, you know, we, we live in the land of sourdough, and you know, you buy that loaf of sourdough fresh from the bakery day one. It's it's fantastic, and then you know, the next day it's a little bit more muted, and after a while, it almost kind of just tastes like stale white bread, and yeah, you know. Yeah, you know, go for the flavor. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, we're getting on a time here, Paul. Yeah. Uh, in the big picture, what's next for East Brother? You know, what beers are on the horizon? What are you excited about most, uh, you know, to pursue creatively uh, and technically here in the future? That's a hard question because right now it's been all about keeping up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did okay last year. Uh, this year, kegs are back and it's turning on. Uh, we see to still be selling the same number of cases and canned beer as we did before. Uh, but I'm looking and then draft is just getting layered in right on top yeah, of that. And okay. people need to restock. We're taking a look at a couple of different styles of, I don't want to say like, in lack of better terms, maybe like an everyday beer, almost kind of, I don't want to say lawnmower, but you know, maybe something on the ale side that is thirst clenching and, you know, a little bit larger quantity. Uh, but what I'm really looking forward to. Nobody is, brews a golden ale or a blonde ale at large scale in no, this, in this state. A, no one does a, that. Not at all. Uh, you know, but, but more importantly is, you know, our tap room is back open. Uh, it's filling up again. And uh, we're almost out of the kind of the, the, the summer, summer push. So I should have some free tanks uh, popping up here soon. And I just kind of want to do some fun stuff. Uh, we're going to do our Belgian Trapel soon, and I love to repitch yeast. Uh, that's the only one that is really outside of our normal uh, yeast plan. Uh, so trying to get another use out of it is always exciting. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, we're going to bring our casks back. Uh, and uh, yes, yes, cask ale is coming back. We're, we're about a week away from uh, some English. Uh, I'm sorry, oatmeal stout, and then we're going to follow that up with uh, some English pale, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's too bad we didn't time it better because who knew that England was going to be almost champions or whatever, but cask. 
Uh, but anyhow, it's the best outcome for England. I know. I mean, I, I it was funny because I made the bet with my wife, and I, I put my um, my money on on Italy, mm-hmm. only because England is so good at losing, mm-hmm. and that there are just. I mean, there are few, like nobody loses the big game, the most important game, like England does. And the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they, you know that the Cubs even won one in the last right. 10 years but or but England is one of the best yeah. at getting there, and then they, of course they figured out how to do this in, in the Euro finals and just lose in spectacular fashion, yeah. like coming out ahead early and then fastest like, goal in history, right? Yeah. And then somehow falling off, uh-huh. and then allowing an equalizer in the second half, and then losing it in penalty because i mean it's the most tragic ending but that yeah. tragic endings are what make for brilliant drinking songs that's right and hey. so how i mean i think that this loss will spur on beautiful drinking songs in english pubs you know for the next few decades and so <laughs> they can remember back and i think that that'll ultimately bring them way more pleasure than yes. than, than winning the game absolutely but i digress <laughs> um paul Lashevsky from uh from east brother beer company thanks for joining me here on the podcast uh if people want to learn more about east brother where do they find you guys uh eastbrotherbeer.com uh or you can just stop by our our uh, tap room over here in Richmond, 1001 Canal Boulevard. Uh, follow the signs, you'll eventually see us. Uh, but yeah, we'd love to have you out here and yeah, in person, in person, in person, yes. because we can do that now. G and D makes the best damn chillers in the world, as uh, Paul here can attest to. <laughs> Set your compass by Roar North Star Pills. Old Orchard offers consistent product and reliable supply. Brewmation puts you in control to design a brewery that fits your needs and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. If you'd like to support the podcast, subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. If you're a pro brewer, of course, we've got our uh, pro all-access stuff on the Brewing Industry Guide site, and we would appreciate your support for that. Um, Paul, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to talk about lager brewing with you. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for coming by, Jamie. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.